Well, what a wonderful time we have, and yet in many ways a very sobering time. It's often been said that history is his story. And you know that statement's true, isn't it? The history of the human race is the story of God's moving toward his ultimate goal, fulfilling his ultimate desire, which is to have a people with whom he can spend eternity. That's God's ultimate desire, and history moves in that direction. As we look back over the history of the human race, we can see six most important events that have happened in the history of humanity. First, of course, is the creation. Second would be the flood of Noah as God reconstituted the human race. Third would be the incarnation, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Fourth would be the crucifixion. And, of course, the resurrection. And the sixth, the ascension. The six most important events in the history of the human race, and all of these are expressions of God's desire to have a people with whom he can dwell in eternity. We see this wonderful picture in Revelation 21 when that someday will be realized. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tent of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people. And God himself shall be among them. That's God's ultimate desire and is toward that goal that he moves all of human history to achieve his ultimate desire. The first of these, of course, is the creation of the human race. In the book of Genesis, we read two accounts. The first in Genesis chapter 1 is in many ways a general summary as God created the heavens and the earth. And then you recall you come to verse 27 in which in counsel, evidently between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as God said, let us make man in our image. And the image of God made him, male and female made he them in the image of God. The Lord created beings in his image. We wonder why did God create the heaven and the earth? Well, it's obvious in the reading of Scripture that the reason he created the earth was to make a dwelling place wherein, at least for a season, he could fellowship with these creatures that he had made in his own image. The earth was made for the purpose of providing a home for mankind. And God commissioned mankind. He said, be blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it, 
Rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over every living thing that moves upon the earth. So man was given a commission. It's yours, own it, rule it, and by the way, have big families. Populate the earth, fill it, be fruitful, and multiply. And everything looked pretty good, didn't it? And then you know what happened next. Satan, God's enemy, we don't need to go down a rabbit trail and decide, describe who that is and where he came from, but Satan, the enemy of God, came into the garden. You see, if mankind was really made in the image of God, then you had to have a free will, for God has a free will. And so man was made with a free will. Also, God did not want to create a race of robots who had no choice but to serve him. My dear wife of 59 years, I would not have wanted her as a wife if she had been a slave and had no choice. But in 1949, she said yes. She made the choice, and we became man and wife. And God wanted creatures who by choice said, we will stay in relationship with you. You will be our God. You will be our Father. Satan didn't want that. And so he came in the subtle form of a serpent and began, we wonder, did he speak with whispering voice or loud voice? We don't know. But he spoke to Eve. He said, you know, God's a liar. God's a liar. He put that tree there, and God, the reason God did was so man could have a choice. Yes, God, we'll leave that alone. We'll obey you. We'll stay in relationship with you. Satan said, God's a liar. The reason he didn't want you to eat of that tree is if you do, you become like God. You'll be his equal. You'll become wise. And not only that, he said the day that you eat therein, God had said that you won't die. God's a liar. And Eve succumbed to the voice of Satan. In, in essence, what she did, she elevated Satan to the place of God. I'll believe you, not him. And she ate of the forbidden tree, the one that God had put there so man could choose to serve him the choice and the wrong choice was made. She gave to her husband and he ate. And for the first time, they became self-aware. We're naked. <laughs> They've never noticed that before. <laughs> We're naked. And so immediately, Adam fashioned out of fig leaves a covering. And you know, some of this account in Genesis has to be figurative language. Because we read that the Lord was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, God's a spirit. So how's a spirit walk in a garden? But he did come into the garden in some way in his presence. And you know the challenge that was put forth. And all the things that God had promised would happen. And the most important one was separation. And... From that moment on, death became a part of the human race.
As the book of Hebrews says, it is accounted unto man, every man wants to die, and after that, the judgment. And so for the rest of the history of the human race, every being except possibly two, depending on how we understand the Hebrew of Enoch, it says God took him. What did that mean? And possibly Elijah, when you remember Elisha was watching Elijah and here came the chariot of angels and they carried him away. Did he die? We don't know. I mean, that's, those are the only two possibilities of any human being who never, ever died. Death became the inevitable consequence of disobedience and man's separation from God. We can only imagine what the heart of God felt when he saw these beings that he had made in his image with whom he longed to have eternal fellowship alienated from him. The years went by. One of Adam and Eve's sons, Seth, was a godly man, and his family was godly. The other son, Cain, was not so, and his descendants were ungodly. So for a season of time, for generations, there was a generation that sought to do what God wanted, and there was a generation who didn't care what God wanted. And in time, these two intermarried, and there was no longer a righteous race upon the earth. And so in Genesis chapter 6, it says every thought and intent of man's heart was evil. Verse 5, you just see how God's heart is moving. The King James says God repented, God he made man. Horrible translation. The Hebrew word is naham. God sighed. And the next word is he grieved. There's a theology about today that says God is immutable. He has no emotion. And if man can do things to stir emotion in God, then that makes man greater than God. I say baloney. God has emotion. Yesterday our family gathered for our clan and it's always a clan when we get together well, I don't know how many we had yesterday but a good crowd big bunch mixed time isn't it Nancy <laughs> time of joy in being together but I'll tell you for me it's also a time of sorrow as I hear what this one's going through and to hear what that one's going through Physical illness, alienation of relationships, struggles. And the way I'm made, I can't just hear it and let it go. It becomes a burden in my heart. And I think that's part of the image of God. Our Lord sorrows over what we go through in this life. It's a part of the human race and a consequence of the fall. And God initially said, that's it. I'm just going to wipe out the whole thing. Man, woman, animals, all of it. And as he looked at the earth, 
he saw one man who was blameless and in his heart sought to walk with God, Noah. And the Lord said, no, <laughs> I'm not going to wipe them all out. We're going to reconstitute the human race. And you know the story of the ark. I don't need to tell you. And God started over. But immediately, the fallen nature of humanity manifested itself. Noah got drunk. <laughs> and his descendants began to say, we're going to build a city. We're going to build a tower. We're going to make a name for ourselves. You notice when Adam and Eve first sinned, the immediate consequences was, was self. <laughs> Isn't that a problem all of us face? <laughs> self. We're going to make a name for ourselves. And God looked down and realized if he didn't act, things are really going to go wrong. And so he caused a confusion of tongues and people were separated according to the language and the nations of the earth were born. And sin continued in the world. One day, after many centuries, God chose a man named Abram and he told him, through you, through you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. He began to speak to him of what was going to happen someday through his descendants. And then three generations later, he narrowed that to Abram's son, grandson, uh, Jacob, who became Israel. They began to grow as a nation. God had them carried away into Egypt, into captivity. He allowed it to happen. And there what had been a big family became a nation. <laughs> and God delivered them then from that place of slavery. He now said, I'm choosing you as my people. It's through you I'm going to accomplish my eternal purpose to have a people with whom I can spend eternity. Here are some statements in scripture concerning that. The Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace from Egypt to be a people for his own possession as today. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. Your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession. You are a holy people of the Lord your God. The Lord has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the people on the earth. But there's always an if. <laughs> now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples for all the earth is mine. There's always an if, you see. A choice. God allows us to have a choice. That's a part of being made in the image of God. Oh, my, how we know that story, don't we? <laughs> how many times the if went the wrong way. They began to worship other gods, not glorify him as God. One thousand... 
443 years after God delivered the Israelites from Egypt and made a covenant with them at that time. In the year that you and I know as 4 B.C., an unbelievable thing happened in that nation. The third of the great events, the incarnation. As God was moving to begin a new creation, a new group of peoples made in his image. I thought Bill Sullivan did a beautiful job a few Sundays ago describing Mary and her experience. Aren't we thankful for that? Nazareth was nowheresville. (laughs) Nobody wanted to be from Nazareth. And so God went to nowheresville and spoke to a nobody. (laughs) Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. And you know the rest of the story. Now, we celebrate that next Tuesday. We don't know for sure the birthday of Jesus, but we humans have decided December 25th. And so that's the day we honor the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Once again, God was going to start over. He was going to bring about a new creation. As Paul wrote to the Corinthians, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. And uh, to the Galatians, neither circumcision anything or uncircumcision, but a new creation. God was going to start over. And so an amazing thing happened. A young Jewish maiden impregnated by the Holy Spirit gave birth to a baby that is totally beyond our ability to understand. How can a being be fully God and fully man? If you're, you can wrap your mind around that, you have a better mind than I have. <laughs> and yet, fully God and human man. Why did God do this? Two reasons. His desire to spend eternity with those who he had made in his image, but also because of the great love he had for those made in his own image. My, my, how many scriptures tell us that? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. 1 John 4.10, in this is love. Not that we love God, but he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. John 1, 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. Ephesians 2, 4. God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. You see, not only did he just desire to have fellowship. But the tremendous love in the heart of God. For these creatures made in the image of God. And so the second member of the Godhead, which from the time his incarnation onward has been called the Son of God, perhaps before that we don't know, was sent on a mission. Hebrews 3.1 says, Therefore, holy brethren, 
partakers of the holy calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. The word apostle, the Greek word apostolos that we render as apostle means one sent on a commission. Now, if it's just somebody sent, it's the Greek word pimpo, you're sent. But apostolos means you're sent on a commission and the focus is the commission, why you're sent. Jesus Christ was sent from heaven with a mission and that mission was to bring about a new creation new creatures with whom God could use to move through history and someday know the joy in his heart and the joy in the heart of all the creatures of spending eternity with him. Think of that. Philippians tells us that this one who existed in the form of God, he didn't think it was robber to be like God, but he he gave it all up and came to the earth and took on the essence of a slave in order that we might be redeemed. But even though he was sent, he had two parts of that mission. One was to reveal the heart of God to these creatures. Man had always heard about God, but he had never physically been among us, and he was in Christ. Jesus said to Philip, he that has seen me has seen the Father. You read these marvelous passages about Jesus seeing the crowd, and he was grieved. They're like sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion. He said, I'll never forsake you nor leave you. His heart, the people could begin to understand truly the heart of God as it was manifested in front of them in the person of Jesus Christ. But the second and apex of his mission was to go to Calvary, the crucifixion. I don't know how much you have pondered the cross. And again, even though I have pondered it <laughs> now for 78 years, I'm 88, I came to Christ when I was 10, it is still beyond my comprehension. Here's this passage in 2 Corinthians 3. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. I don't need to quote them. You know the scriptures that talk about how God hates sin. <laughs> I thought in my own mind, is there any way I can illustrate at all what Jesus did and I can't come up one, but here's some I've thought about. What if I had been a United States soldier fighting in World War II, and I'd seen my companions die and be killed, and I knew that some had been tortured by the Nazis? And what if I'd been compelled to become on a, put on a Nazi uniform and become identified? by those I'd come to hate. Weak illustration, 
but I've sought to find something to help me understand the amazing thing that Jesus had to do. He had to become the very thing he hated in order to go to the cross. And by the sacrifice of his body and blood and the anguish of his spirit, provide a means of allowing a new creation of human beings to be born free of sin. No barrier between them and that heavenly home that where God was waiting. You see, it's all about God. If you want a title for this sermon, that's it. It's all about God, His heart and His love for those whom he had made in his own image. And then the death, the burial, but then the resurrection. You know, one difference between Christmas and Easter is this. On Christmas, we celebrate. And we celebrate on Easter, but before the celebration... We mourn a tragedy. That's a difference between Christmas and Easter. The burial, the death, and the burial of our Lord. And then that glorious <laughs> day of resurrection, Jesus said, Fellas, I'll be gone three days, but I'll be back. And he came back in three days conquering death. You know, over the centuries, because of God, certain ones who had died had been resurrected. But of course, they had to die again, not Jesus. Resurrected to live forever. And then the sixth great event, as he ascended into heaven to sit down at the right hand of the throne of God, to make intercession for us. You see, it's all about God and all about God's moving through history to fulfill his ultimate desire to have a people with whom he can tent. That's what the, the Greek word in the Revelation is, with whom he can tent. Most of your verses say tabernacle. I don't like that word. You know where that word comes from? The Greek word has always been tent, skene. But when Jerome was translating the Greek into Latin, he used the Latin word for tent, tabernaculum. And so today we take tabernacle. Why can't we just say tent? Because God's tenting among us. That's what, he, that's what Jesus did. In, in John 1, it says Jesus tented among us. And someday he wants to tent among us for eternity. What a thought. <laughs> what a thought. And so Jesus has ascended on high and there makes intercession for us. There's another great event we're waiting for, aren't we? <laughs> when God says, it's time. Now Jesus said, no man knows a day nor the hour. <laughs> but it's time, God someday will say. Wouldn't it be great if that were today? Oh, Lord. <laughs> all the suffering, all the pain. All the anguish, the wars, come, Lord Jesus. And we will know 
with God we can rejoice that he will have achieved his ultimate desire, having a people among whom he can tent for eternity. Praise be to God. May the Lord's blessing rest upon you.